0: Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. The better that CEOs do their jobs, the harder they get. No one knows this more than entrepreneur turned venture capitalist, Alexa Von Tobel. Hi, I'm Scarlett Foo with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we'll talk with Von Tobel, the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital. It's a venture fund based in New York City that makes seed and Series A investments in technology-driven startups that appear to be on the path to profitability. We'll discuss why she dropped out of school to start LearnVest in 2007 how she grew from entrepreneur to investor, and why her personal experience gives her the unique ability to provide support to her stable of entrepreneurs when they need it most, as well as why crisis management is integral to a company's foundation. This month's edition, we are joined by Alexa Von Tobel. She is managing director of Inspired Capital, which is a $200 million venture fund that she co-founded last year here in New York. Before that, Alexa started LearnVest, which is an online business that aims to make financial planning more accessible to everyone. And on top of all of that, if that wasn't enough, Alexa is the New York Times best-selling author of the books Financially Fearless and Financially Forward. Alexa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you uh, join us. You're back in New York City, is that right? I
1: am back in New York City um, here braving all the schools and all of the
0: exciting things. And I miss the city, so happy to be here. And this is such a timely conversation. And I'm excited to get your take on how to capitalize in the current environment because you've got a track record of turning chaos uh, and uncertainty into opportunity. So let's start with your first baby, non-human baby, which is LearnVest. You wanted to make financial planning more accessible to everyone. And this was something you'd been thinking about mulling over for a couple of years. Did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur was or was it this specific idea that really turned you on and pushed you towards entrepreneurship?
1: You know, if you ask my mom, I think she would tell you uh, growing up, um, I have always been an entrepreneur. You know, I was the kid instead of selling, you know, lemonade on the corner. I took things off the walls in our house and sold them um, on the on you know at my lemonade stand. Uh, my mom particularly appreciated when I took art off and um, those sort of things. You know when I when I I got to Harvard undergrad, I, I really started to recognize that I was an entrepreneur as I wanted to build things. I had um, built some businesses in high school. I uh, helped start a magazine in in, in college, um, and then after all of that, started writing a business plan for Learnvest and Learnvest was really simple. It was financial planning for the masses, you know, think turbo tax meets financial planning, but designed for everyday normal Americans, which at that time I was 22 years old. And I just felt like that product should exist. You should be able able to get access to a financial plan. So I started working on it nights and weekends. Um, And at the time was part of a company called Dropio that got acquired by Facebook. And so it really gave me a good sense of how to build and understand, you know, uh, getting a company off the ground. And in the fall of 2008, I went back to Harvard Business School and I Right as Lehman Brothers went under and I saw kind of the world amiss and, uh, you know, confusion and concern, just like we are right now. I kind of said to myself, this is the world's best time to go build this business. And I'd done the work so that I felt really convicted in my contrarian point of view of the whole world zigs, zag and decided to drop out uh, and go build a company. And five years later, sold it for about four hundred million dollars, three hundred and seventy five million to Northwestern Mutual and Um, It was a wild ride, but I loved every minute of it.
0: Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. One thing that you mentioned was this 75-page business plan. It basically covered every angle of this startup, and I believe that your goal was really to minimize risk, to address everything that could happen or that could be a factor in the formation of this business. I wonder, how often did you return to that business plan? What deviated from the plan um, and what remained central to the business at the end of the day? Yeah. So I think one of the things that was just
1: so funny to me is, first of all, no one ever asked for the plan. No one even read the plan. Um, And, you know, it wasn't like any beautifully written document. But what it was was deep thought on my behalf of what could the company look like? How would we get customers? Who is our competition? How did I think about Chapter one versus Chapter two versus Chapter three? If one part of the business didn't work, what would I do? And it really was just a comprehensive Um, strategy that I put together. And again, in no beautiful form. So I always recommend to founders out there building something, I say, you don't need 75 pages, but write 10. What's your strategy? How will you be different? And it forces you to really articulate your own deep thinking. And what was invaluable about that is, you know, when you're running a business, you're flying the plane, while building the plane. And you don't have a lot of time, you may have a weekend or two or a few strategy days to like, go deep and really think about okay if if this thing is completely broken how would i go here you can make kind of micro shifts um but like dramatic thought on all the places it can go is sort of hard to come by because you're dealing with you know daily fires um and for me just that level of deep thoughtfulness before i went and jumped you know uh and decided to build the company was invaluable because it gave me a, I had a plan A, a plan B and a plan C. And if plan A wasn't working, I kind of knew what my plan B would be because I'd done some of the prior thought. And let me balance all of that by saying, you're not going to figure everything out. Like part of, you know, some of the stuff is just unknowable until you get into it, but a lot of it is knowable and you can look to your competitors and look at their business model and look to who their customers are and those sort of things. And you can, you can make a lot of good strategic decisions from afar. Mm. Uh, and so again, it, it just gives you a very good map that you are then in, and you at least can pull out the map and say which direction are we going, as opposed to saying literally, do I go left or right right now? Right. right. So I found it was it gave me a lot of confidence too as I was building the business.
0: Okay, so to, to to build on that, starting a business in the best of times is really really difficult and it's a challenge. But you were putting everything together in the years leading up to the financial crisis, and then you decided to really go all in during the financial crisis, you left Harvard Business School. Why did you have so much conviction that this would work, this idea would work in the middle of a big crisis?
1: Um, so it was really simple. And this is kind of a little bit of who I am as a, as a founder and a leader, which is you don't have to overly complicate things. We were living at the bottom of a recession in 2008 that was earth shattering for most Americans' wallets. and. I was able to step back and say, wow, 78, at the time it was 74% of the country lives paycheck to paycheck. Most people, myself included, I was 22 years old. You can't get access to really fancy financial advice until you have a lot of money. And I kind of said to myself, this seems so bizarre that financial planning is a luxury product, like basic financial well-being you get access to more of it. it. It's equivalent of being like the healthier you are, the better doctors you can mm. see. And mm-hmm. like, it's actually the opposite. It's like, if you're not healthy, you should be able to get access to better experts. But the financial world was the opposite. And so again, I was like, that's really messed up. It was a really simple moment of like, that feels wrong. And that doesn't feel like the right way to take care of people and families in the country. And then on the flip side, it was, I was customer number one. I said, I'm sitting here. You know, I'm a very capable person. I went to Harvard and Harvard Business School. So by all accounts, you know, I'm very good at math, very good um uh, financially, but I literally have never been educated on my wallet and I uh, you don't know, get an education in high school, colleges, or grad programs. Yet I have to make financial decisions every day. And I was like, so I'm kind of guessing that makes no sense to me that this there isn't like a better framework. And learn best stood for learn, earn, invest. Literally, you got to learn about it, you've got to earn it, and then you've got to take care of it and invest it. And I shoved them together and I said, I'm going to go build it. Um, and so I was customer number one. And, and back to keeping it simple, I lived and breathed the problem every day. I was like, I want Amazon is already beginning to delight me in terms of frictionless answers. I remember commercials at that time. Banks were like, we're open for one hour, two hours on Saturday. And you're like, what? This is like a modern world that we're moving towards where everything's open seven hours, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And I said, let's just bring that modern world to this very big challenge of the wallet. Mm-hmm. Let's go all online and let's be really trustworthy and be transparent about our fees. And so it wasn't exactly that complicated. It's just that nobody had done it. Um, and as I said, I was I held the problem as the customer. And so it's a really great place to build from. And, you
0: know, I always said I was customer number one uh, yeah. every day. Okay, so you probably saw a problem and you sought to solve the problem. When you were building LearnVest, were you building it to eventually sell it? What was that your end game? No, Um, and in fact,
1: you know, before we sold, we had just raised about $35 million. If I remember correctly, we had about north of $50 million of cash on our balance sheet and we're starting to generate uh, significant revenue. And what I found was what we were building Scaled better if you had planners. So, we basically offered our customers access to a planner. And, you know, Northwestern Mutual is an incredible company. It's 163 years old. It has cared about the American family every day for 163 years. And the CEO is just the most special guy. And he said to me, Hey, we could take your life's work combined with my life's work and come together. We could take your financial planning software and give it to 5 million families overnight, which I knew would take me easily. A decade to to do, and I just felt like it was the right thing to do based on our mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, we were far from looking to sell. In fact, we just fundraised and kind of were in the most supremely advantaged position. Um, but I just felt like it was the right decision. I felt like it was it was you know th- my life's work, um, uh, and that this would be a better place for it in the short term.
0: So when you did sell LearnVest, um, you went from running the company on your own, hiring everyone, making every micro decision to getting folded into a larger old school financial services company. How big of an adjustment was that?
1: They did a really wonderful job. Um, so just to kind of state the the, the basics, um, you know, for the first year, we were completely our own kind of entity. And then quickly, um, I ended up joining the management team and we started really integrating the businesses. Um, but they just did a wonderful job. They put a lot of thought into how do you set this up for success? Um, it kickstarted a full digital transformation of Northwestern Mutual. Um, I became the chief digital officer of the company. Um, and, you know, uh, the leadership team of, of LearnVest ended up, you know, our C, my my original CTO became the CTO of the whole company. I mean, it was really, really a big Um, kind of step. And I thought it was, it really goes back to the values. And I I can take no credit for this. These are Northwestern Mutual's kind of words. They they actually said to me, we have the same value system, which is we believe in doing things, doing them right and doing them all the way through. So let's, let's do that. Mm -hmm. And I felt like we lived
0: that. So it was wonderful. And you sold LearnVest for, I believe, $375 million in 2015. How did having a successful exit like that and the financial security that it brings with you um, at that age change the way you thought about what you wanted to do next, your your next step?
1: You know, I've always been somebody who, uh, you know, my, my, my mom, uh, who I obviously look up to a lot, she she will work every day of her life. It is just how she's wired. She's a pediatric nurse practitioner and loves to take care of families. Um, and I kind of grew up in a an environment where um, what I always heard was like, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. And I always joke, it's kind of the opposite, which is love what you do and you'll literally work every day of your life with no boundaries and care a lot. Um, and so, you know, for, for me, as I thought about what can I fall in love with as much as I love learn Best. It had to be a very organic transition, and I owe it all to my husband. Actually, um, I started doing a t- I started on the investing side before I started Learn LearnBest, um, and I naturally was gravitating back towards it. I was helping other founders. I had been an investor in companies like Lemonade and Tally and Airtable and a bunch of others, and I just loved it. Um, and what quickly started happening was I was doing more and more and more of it. And um, my uh, business partner, Mark, and I were running Northwestern Mutual's Venture Fund um, and loved that and you know, invested in great companies like Chime. And it, it was just organic. And one day, my husband said to me, you would literally do th- this every day for free. You love it so much. It's not work. And it was just, it was like that mirror of awareness of like, i Got to do this no matter what. And so I should, and literally, I just said it would be inspired capital, mm-hmm. you know, money that has built and scaled companies before. And um, our partnership is a really unique partnership. It's Penny Pritzker, who, you know, I uh, was Secretary of Commerce for Obama and, um, you know, on the board of Microsoft and Harvard and loves to build businesses. And Lucy DeLand, who is my um uh, best friend from harvard undergrad who was insight venture partners to start on the investing side and then one of the co-founders over at paperless post and she and i were kids in the tech ecosystem of new york building companies and and then mark batstein who had been with me for a decade and it was he and i were the deal team through Learnvest, and um and then we were part of running north rush mutual's venture fund and it was just a really organic team um uh, also because we'd already been with each other forever we know each other so well we know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I said it was inspired capital because we know how to build companies. And we we always tell the entrepreneur, we know your worst day will be after we give you money. It will be the darkest day of your life. And on those days, like we will be there for you because hmm. those dark days. Um, and wait, wait,
0: hold on. Why would it be the darkest day of your life after you get the money?
1: Because the better, one of the big jokes we have about being a successful entrepreneur and founder is the better you are at your job the harder your job gets Um, it's the only job where the more successful you are the harder the challenges get for you because remember as the CEO you only get the worst challenges because your team keeps getting better and they keep solving problems so it's the worst challenge possible is the one that keeps coming to you every day as the founder and as the CEO Um, and so we tell founders every day we know that the darkest day of your, you know, your job is going to be on the other side of when we give you money, because that's just what happens. The even successful companies have really big struggles, hmm. um, and we want to be there for those struggles. Um, and those struggles are why we get out of bed. Um, is helping
0: you figure them out and get through them. Right now, you mentioned Penny Pritzker, a pretty prominent person in business and in politics. Uh, she comes from basically royalty uh, in Illinois. How did you first meet her? And how did you pitch her on inspired capital i mean did you have to give her an elevator pitch no it was actually
1: far more um genuine and organic than that so i met penny when her and president obama um, had asked me they tapped me to become an ambassador for entrepreneurship for the country they actually created a page program presidential ambassador on global entrepreneurship and they tapped 10 of us um this is before learn best um had a successful exit i kind of. Joked at the time, I was like the baby entrepreneur of the group because there were far more successful people than me in, in in the group. But Penny and I got to know each other through that, um, and then my mom and I actually traveled to Morocco with her as part of the uh, ambassadorship, and I just really got to know her and we became just genuine friends. And you know, she's just a really special person, and she, you know, anything she does, she does all the way into full tilt and. You know, we genuinely share. I always joke. I have no hobbies. I have my family, and I have, I have, I have entrepreneurship, um, and I love building businesses. And she and I really had such a genuine passion for doing it. We love solving complicated problems. Um, we love the mission of a founder who has a big vision to make the world a better place. And how do we help you on that vision? And the cool thing about that is, if it works, it creates lots of jobs. So that's the other important yeah. thing to say. You know, it's not small businesses math massive businesses that create jobs. It's actually startups that become big businesses that create jobs in, in in the economy. and we both you know she was Secretary of Commerce. we really believe in putting Americans to work and um, it was just so organic and I she became my friend and my mentor and I was chatting with her about this vision I had to go start inspired capital and I literally walked her through the whole vision and at the end of it she she emailed me and said, can you call me right back? And she was like, "I have to build this with you. Let's do it together." Um, and th- that was it. It wasn't that much harder than that. And the same goes for Mark and Lucy. Um, Lucy and I always joked for a decade. We knew we, we literally were like, we just know we'll end up building something. Um, and it was just such an organic transition there. Um, and and Mark and I had already been together for a decade in the trenches.
0: Um, okay, so that's that's three prominent women right there. Uh, your first venture fund is $200 million, and that makes it one of the biggest VC funds that's run by a woman. But I want to be clear here because your fund does not invest solely in women-founded businesses, right? Yes, yeah correct but one of the things we always say is
1: if you had three guys at the top of a fund you wouldn't ask the fund do you only invest in men? Um, no we're a complete generalist fund we uh, 200 million dollars we happen to be headquartered um, in Manhattan but we invest around the country and in fact portfolio companies already are not only around the country from you know the the west coast to the center of the country to Toronto to Latin America so really we invest uh, uh, you know around the country and even outside of the country. A full generalist. So Seed, Series A, we're looking for really, really passionate, very special entrepreneurs um, who can see the future and want to go build big category creating companies. Mm -hmm. We want, you know, a a SWAT team of passionate, high integrity people in the trenches. Um, And one thing that's great about Inspired, we always say, you know, we were really kind of born a modern firm, Um, you know, we spend many different generations. We have a ton of diversity, as you mentioned. We have lots of women at the top, but that wasn't like on purpose. We weren't like, let's just go get a bunch of women. We were, they just happen to be really brilliant, smart, very capable people who can help bend the curve of time when you're building a business. Right. Time is your most um, limited asset. So that's how we thought about the team. And uh, the other really great thing about our team is, as I said, you know, we have 10 years of friendships that run 20 years to minimum 10. That's pretty unique in a partnership. Mm. And and I think that makes us very different in kind of what we bring to the table as a group of people.
0: Yeah, you kind of have a shorthand between all of you so that you can get That's to decision making a lot faster. Um, I talked with some private equity guys at the Milken Institute Global Conference uh, this year. And one thing that kept coming up in how to manage through all this disruption is, the need for resilient management. They stress this over and over again. What does that mean to you? And what does that look like to you? How does someone show and prove their resilience? And and if you don't have it, how do you get it? How do you acquire it? How do you become more resilient? Do you need hands-on experience and go through the trials and tribulations? Or is it something that you're born with that is more of a mindset, a philosophy, an an approach? So I think um one, I
1: think that is such an important question. I mean, we sit here right now, you know, at the end of 2022, and I keep joking this year, it's like we started the year in 2020, but or end- sorry, we, we sit here in 2020, we started the year in 2020, but we're ending this year in 2030. I mean, just think about how dramatically the world has changed. And even as we sit here, none of us know what next year is going to look like, you know, we've a, maybe a sense, but we're just living in such an unprecedented moment in human history, in general, being a founder is really hard. And as I said, it's the one job that as you get better at it, your job gets steeper. Because as the company is more successful, you have to grow faster. You have to scale faster personally. And of course, all that happens while you're also jugging all the things that happen in a normal personal life, you know, kids, illnesses, family, you know, stress. So take all of that and then throw on top of it what's happening in the world right now. Um, and one of the things that I think that really does set us apart at Inspired is like, we are actually recession entrepreneurs ourselves. We have started businesses. Paperless Post was started literally at the bottom of the recession in 2008. Um, I you know, was a sole founder of LearnVest then. Penny has lived through so many massive crises. You know, I always joke, you want to be Penny Pritcher's business partner, not when times are good, but when times are bad, because <laughs> you, you see the 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 genius of Penny Pritzker come out. Um, And I think one of the things that we just say is we're looking for founders who stress wakes them up. Mm. It's not just being resilient. It's that you become a better version of yourself during times of acute stress. That doesn't always mean that you're like the most likable version of yourself, but what it really does mean is your quality of decision-making, how you think through process, how you rally a group of people around you the clarity of your communication, that needs to get better when things get really stressful. And right now, so again, in general, building a business kind of no matter what is a very, very stressful thing. Um, And I often just bring so much empathy to founders because I remember the sleepless nights. I always joke, every wrinkle on my forehead was earned because there were just nights where I would wake up at three and there was just no going back to bed. I had my laptop leave you know our bedroom and just start working because there was no chance I was gonna go back to bed and often I had three of those nights in a row um and you're just fried so I have so much empathy I remember you know the the stress of building businesses and you kind of love the stress which is the other crazy part of it all <laughs> the side' you're then adding covid and an unprecedented environment we're in where you know, parts of your business could shift dramatically like they did in March. And so we look for founders who stress wakes them up. They're resilient. In times of extreme, they get creative. They get more strategic. You know, they can rally groups of people. Um, And a lot of that is natural. Some some founders just have it. We look for founders who thrive in chaos. and then some of it's learned and you get better at it. And I certainly, you know, 23-year-old Alexa von Tobel learned a lot of lessons by the time I got to, you know, the age of 30 when we were selling learn Best. Um, You know, I got better at a lot of things. And some of that is just the, you want to, you know, the, the desire to want to get better and want to learn and bring in an executive coach and all that. So some of it's learned, but some of it very much is you thrive quickly in, in, in change and uncertainty.
0: Or you have the training for it. In your case, uh, you played a lot of sports when you were growing up. You were a gymnast. You were a competitive diver as well. And you talk about the training and the discipline involved in, in becoming very good at a sport, becoming really uh, skilled at a sport. Is that something you look for in founders? Is that kind of a prerequisite in any way to, as a tell for what the founder might be like? yeah so again, the um you know, we
1: often like to ask founders, kind of tell us a time in your life where you had to do something superhuman. and like what did you learn about yourself? That's one of my favorite questions to ask people. Um and that doesn't have to just be sports related. You know, in my case, for many years growing up, I b- basically went to school semi part time and went to gymnastics, uh, semi you know almost full time, six days a week, sometimes five hours a day. Um, And I just learned a lot about hyper time management, you know, truly fell down over and over again and had to get back up. Um, And I think that that kind of just teaches you a a love of training and hard work and that, you know, competing and then I was a diver. I actually dove at Harvard um, and, you know, springboard um, and then platform. and that also I always joke, tells you everything you need to know about makes because it's such a crazy sport. Who hurls themselves off 10-meter <laughs> platform? <laughs> it's totally crazy. It's about calculated risk though. It's about calculated decision-making. Um, and uh, through all of that, what I kind of learned was, um, it's the literally hours and hours of practice and hours of visualization that then come together when you're performing it's almost nothing to do with that day that you're performing. It's the hours of work prior. And I think that translates really well to entrepreneurship. Um, and I had somebody on my podcast recently where we just chatted about sports. And you know, it really translates kind of beautifully, in fact, because it's not that day of showing up. It's the literal months and years prior. Um, and this great entrepreneur, and I just chatted about it, and I was like, I, I totally agreed that sports often can play a big role, but it's really anything. It's practice, practice, practice. Gotcha. Fail, fail, fail. get back up, do it again, get back up, do it again. Don't, you know, learn not to lose focus, learn not to get frustrated. You just sometimes keep running at walls until you finally break through. Um, And I'm a big fan of hard work.
0: I just pictured the Kool-Aid man crashing through the wall right there. Um, one thing you learned at Harvard Business School before you dropped out is that weaknesses are not a bad thing. In fact, you should own them. You should embrace them and be candid about your shortcomings. How does embracing your vulnerability add to rather than diminish your resilience? I mean,
1: I think this is one of the things that, at least from my perspective, you know, I, I studied uh, psychology undergrad. I worked in the happiness lab for a little while. so. I've always been very interested in how we work, how we tick, EQ, um, team building, all of that. Um, and I think, thank goodness over time, I you know hopefully keep getting better each year as, as I get better myself. I think one of the things I'm most excited about of the last few years is how much we've been as a society embracing vulnerability. Um, none of us are perfect. You know, I, I remember as a young founder, 22, 23, 24, very you know feeling this like i have to have all the answers and i think one day it in somebody on my leadership team it was like alexa you know you don't have to have all the answers right and i was like thank god because i don't um and it was just this big moment of relief where it was like of course i shouldn't have all the answers i have a vision and you know and it was also just embracing the like hire people smarter than you. And I think in the last few years as a society and a culture, I've seen this big shift where we recognize embracing vulnerability and humility. One, thank God, because none of us have all the answers. None of us are great at everything. I made so many mistakes and I will be the first to tell you that, um, and was far from perfect. Um, and I think that it has created just a far, I think it's just a more authentic way to be a leader because um, nobody wants to follow the person who thinks they have it all figured out either yeah, yeah. so no, I just I, I I really appreciate it. I also one of the things I love about this new work life um and is you're you're in people's homes, you're seeing who they are. we're like getting rid of. it used to be this like briefcase and professionalism you show up and your hair's done perfectly and you're ready to go. I just don't think that's how the world works anymore. It's like you shift between work life, home life, balance, weekends, text, email, phone call. There's just this fluidity that is becoming more real too. And I think we're just embracing a more authentic mm-hmm. vision. You're human. And when you're human life, you have your family and you have your work and you're, you're, you're who you are. And it's a, It does. It doesn't all have to be perfectly buttoned up, and um, I just I, I I appreciate this chapter of vulnerability that I right. hope and pray we continue to embrace as a society, and I think that this new Zoom world is also showing us that like people have all these different sides of who they are too, and you can embrace a whole human. And I think just last thing I'll say from my work growing up and in, and in, in, you know studying psychology is when you get to just be who you are you're so much more likable. And you can do your job so much better. You feel in your own swim lane. Um, and I think that's the other thing I'll just say is it's
0: a it's great environment that I hope we continue to head towards. Worlds colliding is not a bad thing, your personal life and your work life. Um, Let's go back to this idea of building something in the middle of a crisis. I want you to compare and contrast your experience of uh, running a startup in 2009 with the experience that your portfolio company founders are are going through now during uh, this COVID-19 crisis. What specific parallels do you see between the two?
1: So the first thing I'll just say, you know, I launched uh, LearnVest really in May of 2007, but dropped out of HBS in the fall of 2008, and then launched Inspired uh, in 2019, but really launched it, you know, at the end of last year, right as we went into this. So I always joked myself, you know, I'm right there with the founders um, because back in the trenches, building my life's work, with a very long vision ahead of us and and ahead of me, um, and so one, I feel a lot of kin to our founders right now in a really good way. Um, and, but you know, if I had to go back to 2008 versus a founder in our portfolio today, um, some things are easier and some things are so much harder. And so I I just do feel a lot of empathy for people, you know, managing overnight a team of 50 people all over Zoom where you can't be in person, it's hard. I think a lot of the tools that we need in our future world, like it's hard to whiteboard over Zoom, right? Like one of the best things that I used to do when we really had very scary, stressful problems, that we'd get in a room, order in some food, put the whiteboard up and just green light, we called it green light thinking. And we would just be like, what are all the solutions potentially? Let's run through them all, no such thing as a dumb idea. How do you do that right now? And it was some of those moments that created some of the best culture, you know? I, uh, because you were like, all right, we're in this together. No one's hierarchy matters. I don't know the answer. Let's figure it out. There's a camaraderie that you build. And so, you know, I I, I think that is one of the places where I think communication skills matter more. They always matter, but I think they matter even more in this fully virtual environment, um, culture building in this environment. How do you do yeah. that? What does it look like? Um, we have an amazing CEO in our portfolio, Stephanie um, Kirkpatrick, the CEO of Aurum you know, she's just gotten so creative on a few fronts where I've just been blown away by the creativity that comes out when it's like, you know, you've hired somebody, not met them for four months. Like, (laughs) how do you, how do you, how do you get around that? How do you create great culture? Um, and I think just people are really beginning to figure it out, but, um, I do think that there are parts of it that are harder. Uh, so
0: yeah okay so clearly the people and the chemistry and um the ability to come up with new ways of solving old problems or persistent problems is critical here but also there are ideas that maybe resonate more in this time than others what sort of ideas are you most excited about are you most inspired by right now um good use of inspired um a few things so
1: First, I love fintech. I've loved fintech for so long. Um, you know, LearnBest was one of the first fintech companies I've written, as you mentioned, two books on the topic. Um, so just so many things in fintech I love. Uh, everything from, you know, the Gen Z wallet to the future of retirement to embedded finance, where you're starting to see financial services just follow big audiences around on the internet, um, to the future of our credit score to also cleaning up some of the incumbents. So like I could talk your ear off um some of the categories that i've also just started to spend a lot of time thinking about is the future of work labor markets are shifting how we think about you know there's millions and millions of americans unemployed and even more on unemployment benefits and i don't think tomorrow those jobs are unfortunately going to come back in swaths and how do we think about what happens then what does that look like you know the passion economy the gig economy the freelance economy call it whatever you want but the i uh, i can do things in a very different working environment way we love we've been thinking about the financial infrastructure so if you're a founder out there um thinking about the future of our our social wallet in the 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 gig and freelance economy i'd love to chat with you we've thought a lot about the reckoning of education um uh, if you're a parent out there you know i have little kids um we're in some ways really unbundling how we think about education right now, and if Covid persists much longer, which it very well may. Um, how do you think about grouping up and teaming up and bringing education in unique ways? How do you do virtual education? My two and a half year old did zoom today, for example. What does that look like? um and and how do we think about the future of education? Um, those are a few categories. We've thought a lot about the the reckoning of health, which is, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, five percent of doctor's appointments were happening over Zoom pre-COVID. In some cases, it's north of 70 percent are happening over Zoom now. That's just staggering, and that is a wonderful, efficient way that saves a lot of costs that allow people to see doctors. And so, um, again, just a lot of that. Um, but in short, you know, if if Penny, Lucy, and Mark were here, they would say. We're just really focusing on big ideas, decade-long vision, uh, visionary founders who know what it takes to go build something special. Mm-hmm. We're also, bringing with it a unique point of view um, and a durable business model. So we also look for, you know, a real business. You're building something that is solving a real problem. Going back to Learn Best, I was client number one. I had a real problem. I wanted. To have somebody help me figure out my finances so that I could always thrive, that was a real problem. There was no one who could help me, and so we built, you know, a real solution. And so, right. again, just bringing um, a bit of that kind of sense, sense making to to the strategies as well.
0: So at the start of 2020, um, which feels like decades ago, you were excited about restaurant technology opportunities. We know the pandemic has hurt the restaurant and the hospitality industry, uh, really, really badly. But it's also clear that, you know, restaurants are not going anywhere anytime soon. There's still a lot of demand for it. So what kind of innovation or investment are you seeing in this space right now? How much of the time horizon has been accelerated by the pandemic? What, what's the big idea in restaurant tech right now? I mean, we have looked at almost—I would say—a a,
1: a many, many, many companies in the restaurant tech space, um, from the point of sale to you know all of the the touch free um, apps that we've seen. To how do you help restaurant owners who are also just entrepreneurs themselves? Think about that—they're just an entrepreneur who has a vision, who loves hospitality, and wants to put you know good food and 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 wine in front of you. Um, so we thought a lot about that. Um, we went through a huge score of them. Um, A big part of the small business economy is hospitality and restaurant. And as we know, that's going through kind of a a, a massive, a massive, you know, earth shattering shakeup. And so um, we looked at what kind of technology could help it. Um, You know, I think there's some really, there's some great incumbents like toast, which will continue to um, get bigger and better. Um, We looked at food delivery um, and, you know, how our behaviors are changing so much. So we also looked a lot about um, that stack. The one thing I'm really excited about, and if anybody out there is excited about building it, is just the future of hospitality. I think the way we think about hospitality is also really shifting right now with new safety measures, but also understanding my preferences. um, And then why can't I? pre-order, pre-do things before I go places. Um, and I think we're just seeing a, a good shift there. Um, so anyways, that was a long winded way of saying um, we've looked at many, many different parts of the stack um, and
0: remain really interested in it. How easy or hard is it to raise capital right now, Alexa? I mean, where's the money coming from? Who are your investors and uh, what kind of timeline do they have? Are they looking for something different or have their needs stayed pretty consistent throughout this whole pandemic? Um, so on two fronts,
1: first, um, uh, you know, running a, a venture fund, uh, we were really fortunate to have just some exceptional institutional investors uh, ranging from pensions to endowments, et cetera, uh, for Inspired. And they're very patient. They're incredibly thoughtful, patient investors. So Inspired, really, really lucky. Um, on the flip side, uh, for founders out there who are watching this and listening, you know, there's a lot of capital out there. I always tell founders just be really thoughtful because whoever you're taking capital from, you're marrying, um, and you really are, you're marrying them probably for about a decade. Um, And you, you know, founders have as much power, if not more, than investors. And so, you know, just putting back on my CEO entrepreneur cap, I always tell the founders take the time to pause and really ask yourself, how does this investor make me feel? Can I be myself? Um, with all the capital, which, by the way, is going to be invaluable because if you're facing a earth shattering problem at your business, you're going to need to be able to be yourself um, and, and you know, you're going to want to be able to have a thought partner through that. Um, for the amount of capital out there, you know, we're seeing uh, just this year there was not there, there was never a slowdown in venture. Um, it, if anything, you know, the companies that did exceptionally well out of the gate quickly got marked up in the next round. So you almost saw two rounds happening in these very compressed periods of time. So a seed raise for one of our companies got done in, call it, early May. And then the Series A got preempted in August because it was such a big idea. It's that sort of behavior that um, what was really happening. So almost just this the, the stronger getting stronger and you're seeing right mm. to really high quality, um, which we're fortunate a few of the companies in our portfolio were those businesses that saw that. Um, So, you know, there's, um, and then there's just a lot of really great investors out there. You know, I have a lot of respect for the firms around us. Um, We admire uh, a bunch of firms and are really grateful that we get to work with them.
0: What does a successful exit look like? Or what will it look like in the next couple of years? Um, there's a whole new wave of interest in those special purpose acquisition companies, SPACs, will it be to IPO or direct listing or to sell yourself perhaps to an old school financial services company like a Northwestern mutual, for instance?
1: Um, So uh, one, I I love that you brought this up because I think first of all, the way I view this and I I sincerely mean this is, we want founders who want to have whatever exit that they want to have. And I think that's an important thing to say, you know, each company is really different. Um, You know, some companies should grow and get as big as humanly possible and, um, you know, should have no exit in mind. Other companies, you know, they'll have natural moments of, you know, with all of the SPACs and direct listings and the going public. And in fact, the SPAC activity has been, I think, equal to IPO activity over the last few months um you know some of those could make a ton of sense but i think for us we're very much so focused on fundamentals is this the right decision for the founder and the, the the founding team or team of employees? Is this the right decision for the technology that exists? Is there a lot of bandwidth ahead of it? Is this the right decision for the investors and every employee who's worked tirelessly to make this happen? Um, and then finally, is, is, do the numbers look the right way? And, um, you know, so I would say for us, you know, there's no such thing as like, what's the perfect exit. It's, it's really, uh, if you think of it as like each, each company is, you know, almost. I always joke a child and a company are so similar in so many ways. Um, but each each company deserves its right path for that company, and our job is to help that path be as successful and big as possible um, to the things that match what what's natural and organic to that company. And the one thing that just Ed inspired is we don't believe in shortcuts. In fact, like I don't think there's such a thing as a shortcut when you're an entrepreneur. You have to bring 150% every day to work. You have to have a tireless work ethic. Um, there's no such thing as a trick um, in building a, a successful company. And, uh, you know, we want to
0: be here for the
1: long haul. And so we're also very
0: patient capital. Do you see this SPAC phenomenon lasting beyond the next year or so? I mean, is this going to be a permanent feature here? You know, i um, like anything, when there's kind of a, a, a
1: swarm of excitement, you're seeing so much enthusiasm around it. So you have the pros and the cons and lots of naysayers. Um, you know, I think that's a SPAC as an exit, um, I think probably we will continue to see that as an option uh, for CEOs and founders. Um, but just like anything, when you've seen too much of it in a short period of time, you're also going to see some SPACs that just go sideways and the quality is not going to match you know, uh, people's expectations. So I think you'll also see a lot of, uh, crashes, crashing and burning. And I think that'll create some more skepticism. Uh, but just because you're doing so many of them in such a short period of time, of course, there's going to be some people who didn't do enough diligence and, and didn't do enough uh, in terms of kind of flight for quality. Um, so in general, we're big fans of deep diligence, flight for quality, very thoughtful, long-term decisions. Um, and we kind of ascribe to that there's no such thing as a shortcut.
0: Okay, I know that we have some questions from uh, some students, but I want to pose one final question to you and it draws upon your background, your training as a financial planner. What's the number one piece of advice you have for someone who's deciding whether or not to start a company right now Um, and also your advice for someone who's early in their career, perhaps thinking about leaving business school, for instance?
1: Um, so first of all, I love this question. Cause I'm like, I literally lived through this. Um, you know, one of the things I, I say to people when they're young is dream big because nobody else is going to dream for you. Um, and you know, this isn't the dress rehearsal, this is your life. Um, and so swing big, uh, I, I, I then marry that thought of swing big with, you know, bring the plans with it, do the work with it. So I always tell people have a, basic financial plan for yourself as a founder so that you know what your Cinderella moment is when you turn into a pumpkin and like you got to go home um, because it's no longer working. Um, and just taking needless, endless risk is not a good decision. In fact, you could really, really, um, you know, impair your, your financial life that way. And so um, I always balance everything with swing massively and have the plans to back it up. Uh, and in that case, I would say the business plan and the financial plan.
0: All right, maybe not 75 pages like uh, what you put together, but some, <laughs> some kind of plan um, in any case. All right, uh, for those of you who are still with us and uh, are Cornell Tech at Bloomberg regulars, and hopefully you all stayed with us, uh, we always leave time for a Q&A, and we're happy that we're able to do it uh, virtually this time as well. We've got a couple of questions from <laughs> Cornell Tech students, and uh, the technology looks like it's cooperating right now. So let's bring in Shamak Ratra. Shamak. Hi, Alexa. Uh, my name is Shamuk. I'm an MBA student at Cornell Tech. Um, So at Cornell Tech, um, as Cornell Tech students, one of our focuses is developing products that can first create value for consumers, but also for society. Um, And I think personal finance education is what I'm focused on. It really fits into that space. Um, But a challenge is creating something that's engaging. Um, So from your experience with launching LearnVest in the past and even your work now, what have you found is key to engaging people in something that can be useful for them?
1: You know, I think that you have to meet the customers where they are. So I would just say, you know, one of the big things I learned around the wallet um, was that most people are really overwhelmed when it comes to their finances. And in fact, I always joke that I never met anybody who was like, oh, I feel awesome about my finances. I have no issues. And so I think people's psyche is very important when it comes to the wallet um, and really making sure you meet customers where they are. Um, And particularly around where they are in their acumen in their confidence and in their trust. Um, And I would say those three things are invaluable when it comes to the wallet and particularly when you're building platforms and apps um, for everyday consumers.
0: Okay, let's bring in our second student, Tirtha Gopakumar with a question for Alexa. Tirtha? Hey Alexa,
1: thanks so much for your time today. Like Shamak, I'm also an MBA student. I wanted to ask you about the importance of introducing financial education to people at an earlier age. You've often mentioned your mom is an amazing budgeter and taught you the value of spending on experiences over things. And you're lucky to have been raised in such a household, but not all parents have that background. So, how do we get something like a Learn Best, but for high school students, or say a modified 50, 30, 20 budget, but for college expenses? First, I love it. Um, and I think um, one of the big things that we learned for, for high school students is money is this odd dynamic where it becomes more real and you care more about it once you're actually earning it. So when it's 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 a psychology moment where even if your parents give it to you and say this is all you have, you still know that your parents are how you pay your bills so. While you teach a child in high school about their wallet, it doesn't actually become a survival mechanism until people are earning their own money. So one of the things we, we learned through a lot of data um, was that people begin to care a lot more and pay a lot more attention about their wallet once it's their own money. And particularly, roughly what we always said it was around the age of 26 to 28 when somebody else relies on you for your money. So that is a long-winded way of saying that um, apps in high school are kind of nice-to-haves but I don't know that they're kind of the the core thing where somebody's going to begin to like meaningfully change their life. Um, and one thing I will say is, you know, I love apps like Robinhood and other where they're engaging people with their money in these far, I would say, just easier, more natural ways. Um, but if you're going to teach somebody about their wallet, you really want to teach them um, as they actually begin to earn income. So that would be the point I would say matters.
0: Let me just follow up there because uh tirtha asked about the 50 30 20 budgeting model can you explain what that is and and how you use it sure um so in my first book
1: um financially fearless uh which was a bestseller and i had a ton of fun writing it um it's this really simple thing it's called the 50 20 30 rule so let's just pretend for the sake of math you make 100 a month okay 100 of it should go to what we call your essentials. That's the roof over your head, to pay for your utilities, to pay for your groceries, and to pay for how you get to and from work. So that is what is truly essential to live. So 50% should go to that. 20% should go to savings, so that's the 20. And then 30 or less is your lifestyle. That's what you get to make choices on. Do you eat out, do you see your friends, do you buy gifts, do you go on vacation? And the whole purpose of the 50-20-30 rule is it's really just a simple framework. One of the things that we learned was that people don't know how to live within their means because nobody understands what their means are. And when you live in a digital world where you stare all day long at Instagram and it appears as though everybody else has a hundred new outfits and dresses and furnitures and vacations, you just almost by proxy lose real sight of what does it mean to live within your means. So the 50% is really invaluable, which says if you basically... You know, a hundred dollars per month. Your rent should be thirty percent. So this is of of the total one hundred. Your rent should roughly be thirty uh, percent of what you bring home, and that's a very good barometer for how can you afford it. And people always ask the question, but what if I live in San Francisco or New York City or London or a place where it's really expensive? We kind of say your rent shouldn't be more than thirty to thirty five percent of what your take home income is for the year. So again, if you make $100,000 in a year, it should be thirty dollars to $35,000 total for all 12 months to, to live. It's just a very good barometer for living within your means. It's a great question, and I am very happy um, that you brought it up.
0: What about, is there a similar model that companies should use to live within their means as well? Um, I would say be profitable, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is uh, treat
1: every dollar like a drone also um, is probably a good mantra.
0: Okay, treat every dollar like it's your own. Thank you so much, Alexa. Alexa Tovel of Inspired Capital who's been extremely generous with her time. And of course, uh, time is one of her most precious commodities. Uh, she's got three kids under the age of five and a half. She's a managing partner at a venture firm, so she has got her hands full. Alexa, thank you so much. Thank you, I'm honored to be here, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.